Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this program known as The Takeout. Without further ado, let's introduce our special guest this week, CBS News legal analyst Ricky Kleeman. Ricky, it's great to talk to you. How are you? I'm excellent, Major, and it's great to be with you. So, folks, we're recording this April 28th. So the news of today is that a search warrant has been executed at the New York apartment of one Rudolph Giuliani. We don't know very much about it. We don't know what the search warrant is for. I'm not going to ask Ricky to speculate about that. But, Ricky, you have been a criminal defense attorney. You have lectured long on law. You are very familiar with the federal code and the mechanisms, the methods federal investigators and prosecutors use. Do you have any spidey sense about how important this execution of a search warrant may or may not be? Well, it has to be very important and significant, Major, because you cannot simply go out and get a search warrant for an attorney unless you have a real basis to look at probable cause to give to investigators and eventually perhaps to a grand jury. If this were a search warrant for a person not an attorney, if this were a search warrant for a person who was not an attorney to the president of the United States, then I might not be so concerned were I someone representing Rudy Giuliani. But Rudy Giuliani knows full well from his previous position in the Southern District of New York uh, and his work in the Department of Justice, just as I know, that a search warrant for someone of his caliber, that is an attorney, an attorney for the president, someone of his also his celebrity status, that this would be something that would be going all the way up through the Department of Justice. I I don't think that this is a search warrant that would just be executed for what we call a fishing expedition. They obviously have a focus. They wanted electronic devices, be it cell phones, computers, and others, that this is something that he should be concerned about. And as you mentioned, he has many areas of status. He was not only the former mayor of New York City and a very successful one. He was an ally of President Trump. Then he became his personal attorney. I would have to think within just the New York ecosystem, today, this event is like, whoa, what? I I think that's a fair statement. I I mean, I'm in New York. It's going around like wildfire. My 
texts and my emails were rolling with headlines from various news sources and people who had questions. One of the things that we certainly know is that this is something that probably didn't just begin um, since Joe Biden has been in office. We know that Ruby Giuliani was under investigation that has been reported, at least as an associate of two of his friends who have been indicted previously uh, by the Southern District of New York. So whether or not this is simply something coming out of the Southern District or it is something that is coming from on high in Maine justice, we don't know. But you don't change administrations, get a new attorney general and decide to execute an old search warrant. You obviously have to have a current search warrant with current probable cause to search. And Ricky, it's implied in all of your answers, but I just want to state it clearly for the audience. And anyone putting together a search warrant like this knows they are dealing with someone who knows this exact process, who is cagey, who will be highly aggressive in protecting not only his rights, but his equities and everything about him. You are not executing this against a garden variety suspect. No, you are not. And we may recall that the other lawyer for President Trump, uh, who had a search warrant executed upon his living quarters, as well as his office, was Michael Cohen. It was executed in the Southern District of New York, which encompasses Manhattan. So these are things that are well thought out. They are very well prepared. And we have to remember that whatever the government is looking for here in the course of an investigation, that the investigation is expected to proceed with due process. And there is no imputing guilt of any kind about any crime to Rudy Giuliani at this point in time by the execution of a warrant in and of itself. Precisely, precisely. Okay, the end of that, because we've taken that conversation as far as we can go. So, Ricky, what I want to do uh, with your indulgence this week is have not only a precise, but also, at the start, philosophical conversation about where law, justice, and policing are in this country. Do you think we are at something that approximates, at the local level and in the national conversation, a crisis point? Yes, I I don't even hesitate at at that thought. Um, I think that the crisis point occurred uh, back on May 20th of 2020 during the killing of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin. I think there can be no dispute that that killing for nine minutes and 29 seconds galvanized a movement across the country of peaceful protest as well as other people being present that created acts of looting and vandalism, but that nonetheless, that the act of protest on the part, not only of people of color, but certainly young people, white young people, where it's a raising of consciousness about treatment of African-Americans by police departments in various parts of the country. The fact that the crisis point of uh, a year ago that now exists, it certainly has been addressed in many places where we have seen legislation on the state and local level. We have seen a change of practices uh, in police departments at state and local level. And of course, there is now 
pending the possibility of federal legislation. I want to add something here that I don't usually get the time to add. Mm -hmm. This is also a crisis, please keep in mind, for, for people who are listening or viewing. This is a crisis for police departments to rethink how they train their officers, how they want their officers to be respectful of all people. The best police chiefs, the best police commissioners in this country are the people at the forefront right now about talking about reform. And there are some great minds of these police chiefs, uh, police professionals, police commissioners, and others who have the best interest not only of the community, but the interest of trust, which is an interest that is of paramount importance to good police officers. There is no doubt in my mind, because I have conversations with police people all the time, both at the patrolman level, as well as at the commissioner level, past and present, who will talk about the fact that what they want is to have trust going both ways. These are cultural changes and we can't look at this as a moment of crisis only for people of color. This is a moment of crisis where the actions have also got to be a part of the police community and they're the ones who are also leading the charge for reform. And Ricky, so my audience knows Many of them already do, but some may not know. And we've got about 40 seconds before we need to go to our first break. Tell my audience how you know so deeply and so well at a personal level some of these conversations that go on in police ranks across the country. I'm married to Bill Bratton. Bill Bratton was the police commissioner twice in New York City, the police commissioner in Boston, and the police chief in Los Angeles. I also take part in many of the seminars that are given by policing organizations and am very good friends with some of the best police leaders in the country. That's the voice of Ricky Kleeman, our special guest. Back for segment two of The Takeout, I'm Major Garrett. We're going to continue this conversation, both philosophical and very specific, on police reform and justice in this country. Stay tuned. Segment two in a second. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Ricky Kleeman, CBS News legal analyst, is our special guest. Ricky, you talked about the George Floyd killing, the murder now as adjudicated by a jury in Hennepin County in Minnesota. But as anyone who was attached to that movement that arose after that killing would tell you, it's not just George Floyd. It's Rayshard Brooks. It's Breonna Taylor. It's Philando Castile. Some would argue it's Michael Brown. Some would say it's Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner. There is a long number of names that fall into this bitter and deeply regretted category. Do you think what happened with George Floyd was it finally reached an accumulated point of revulsion in this country that 
it took, sadly, yet one more incident like this to break out? I think that the George Floyd murder in and of itself, if it just stood alone, would have been enough uh, to really create a movement in this country. One of the things that happened with that terrible murder was the fact that we as a populace watched nine minutes and 29 seconds. Excessive use of force cases, Major, are usually a matter of seconds. They are very rarely a matter of minutes. But when you get to the level of nine minutes plus, that is extraordinary. The other thing about that film, that went, uh, that video that went viral, uh, is the, the fact that it was not in the heat of passion. There was no active fight going on there that was caught on videotape where you would have seen the kind of everlasting struggle. Yes, there is a struggle, but it is quick. It has to do with the police car. He didn't want to go into the police car. He's claustrophobic. There's a slight injury in the police car, and therefore the police correctly called for um, the EMTs. He's taken out of the police car. But what's different here is that once he is prone on the ground, an extraordinary amount of time passes. And it's that coldness that inattention, the calculated lack of compassion that I think that this case alone by virtue of that videotape is not just what tipped the scales, that it in and of itself would have caused a movement. One of the subtexts of that trial and one of the subtexts of this entire large conversation, Ricky, is what are the police assumptions about their lines of authority and what are their assumptions about compliance? And if you are not compliant, what are the remedies? And the black community believes that the remedy for police departments is to treat you as brutally as possible if you don't comply. And then they say, well, when we don't comply, we have a higher percentage or higher risk of being shot, which means we're not eager to comply because we're afraid of things that white people simply aren't afraid of in this country. Philosophically evaluate that arc of conversation. Well, there's a lot of problems with that arc of conversation, Major. Um, the reality of the situation is that if you were to count the number of police killings of African-Americans, you would find that the number is very small when it comes to those who uh, are unarmed. So we're usually dealing, usually dealing with larger numbers of resistors who are armed. So it creates a firing situation from both sides or the potential for one. When you get to people who are unarmed, the problem is always if you resist, if someone resists, there is the potential for a, a, a real tragedy, whether it's injury or death. So resistance does create its own arc, if you will. If you don't resist, I think that, although people don't want to believe this, that in most police departments, if you are going to comply, nothing bad is going to happen to you. If you are white, black, brown, yellow, or red. Nothing bad is going to happen. But the fear factor, Major, because often the perception of fear becomes the reality of fear. 
So the fear of compliance of, oh my, if I do comply, heaven only knows what's going to happen to me, which may well be a very false fear, creates the resistance. I mean, if you look at the cases that you have named, um, in, in many of these cases, whether it was the slight lack of compliance in George Floyd, or whether it's Rayshard Brooks um, reaching for the taser and running, or whether it's Eric Garner standing uh, still and saying, I'm not going, um, whether it's Michael Brown, though I'm going to put Michael Brown in a different category simply because even Eric Holder's Justice Department also said that this was an act of self-defense on the part of the police officer, and neither the grand jury on the federal side or the state side indicted in that case. Right. But what you do have is resistance starts to create a frenzy, and resistance creates something that somehow just no one seems to back off of. So I think one of the issues has to be in these discussions is you've got to go back again and start at the beginning. If you can build trust in a community with its police department and you can build trust in the police department with its community, it's a two-way street, that then you're not going to have so much resistance. And that would be a very good thing to happen out of all of this turmoil. A related conversation, Ricky, which you could find online almost immediately after the dreadful shooting in South Carolina at Mother Emanuel Church. Uh, Dylan Roof is taken into custody without incident. He is driven. He's given a meal and a some kind of beverage. Black America looks at that and said, are you what? Are you kidding? The suspect in the El Paso mass shooting at a Walmart taken into custody without incident. And the black community sees that and says, wait a minute. How, how come people in our community who don't do anything like that, find themselves in situations that become perilous, sometimes fatal, when people who commit actual crimes who are not black are handled differently. Now, I'm not asking you to resolve that conversation, but it is part of this dialogue, is it not? Yes, it is. Um, however, one of the problems for both sides in this dialogue is that it is only the notorious cases that get videotaped and become part of the news. What people forget is that you have 800,000 plus police people in America. So you have over a million interactions a day with the public. I mean, a million interactions a day. Now, obviously, most of those interactions are helpful, peaceful. Um, officer, the officer is your friend. Ask him for directions. Ask him for help. Um, you've got a flat tire and he got, comes up and he helps you, or you have a busted taillight and he comes and you have a conversation and he either gives you a ticket or you go on your way, no matter what the color of your skin. Those cases don't get reported, Major. I mean, they can't um, right, right. if you have Understood. a million interactions a day. <laughs> right. So we're, not there. we're not there to write headlines. Today in America, 999,975 police civilian interactions end peaceably. Right. We just don't write that. We don't write that headline. Right. But it's a factor. And it's mm -hmm. a factor that we need to face. You know, one of the issues um, when we look at whether it's Dylan Root um, uh, or whether it's other white uh, shooters that is in these mass 
killings that in the you know whether it's a high school or it's a supermarket or, or boulder colorado boulder, boulder colorado is a perfect example again uh one of the things that we do find that i i think does uh understandably upset the community of people of color is that the it, we'll take dylan root i think because he's an easy one to look at or the original aurora movie shooting at midnight that was the one of the earlier mass shootings what happens is when the the police come in and they're shooting and then the uh the shooter puts his hands up drops his weapons and clearly shows that he is ready to surrender now at that point, any person, whether they're white or black or brown or yellow, any person who does that throws down his or her weapons, it's usually, unfortunately, it is, um, and says, in essence, I'm here, I'm done, okay, you, uh, you can take me now. The police are not going to kill that person. Right. Police right. are going to take that person in. The problem. R Ricky, let me let me let me let me hold that thought because I need to go to a break. Uh, Ricky Kleeman is our special guest on the other side of the break. I'll let her finish that thought. But we just need to take a quick break. I'm Major Garrett. Segment three of the takeout coming up in just a second. From CBS News, this is the takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back, CBS News legal analyst Ricky Kleeman is our special guest. Ricky, continue the thought. Where I was, Major, is the fact that if, if the police are able to see in front of them, and they've already been firing, it's not like they haven't been firing when you have one of these mass killings, because they're out to kill the shooter to stop the threat. When the shooter happens to put up his hands, drop his weapons and say, okay, uh, I'm done, in essence, that the police, if they are not literally in the act of shooting their own weapons, will take a breath and take that person into custody, no matter what his color or her color, as the case may be. The difficulty is that it appears to the public that the white defendant, whether he has shot and killed one person or many people, it appears to the public that the white defendant gets treated well and the black defendant does not. But there are times when both of these uh, supposition switch. The thing is, what what is the public see and when do they see it? And so the notorious cases tend to make us think of a Dillon Root or a Boulder, Colorado or an Aurora, Colorado, and then look at what happened uh, to George Floyd or uh, others that you have mentioned. The, the problem is where we start. No good news leads the headlines. The bad news <laughs> leads the headlines. What should the country think about uh, the potential for an appeal and the Derek Chauvin conviction? Should the country be bracing itself for something that might be a reversal? Well, I think that the country uh, is getting uh, a fairly good education in the criminal justice system by virtue of the trial. And part of a trial then leads to the second layer of process, which is called an appeal. And there are some very good, from a defense lawyer's point of view, uh, a solid issues for appeal. They will be argued and an appellate court will decide if they have merit or not. Now, one thing the public needs to know is that appealable issues are about the law. 
They are not about the facts of the case. Ultimately, even if an appeal is granted, that is that there should be a new trial, that's exactly what will happen. There will be a second trial. Uh, so does the public have to gird itself up for the possibility of reversal? Well, I wouldn't say they have to go that far. I think what they have to do is accept the fact that we live in the United States of America, which is a country based on law, and that the worst people amongst us have to be treated with due process in order for the rest of us to be able to live and believe in due process. And Ricky, there's another part of this conversation that I want to give you a chance to weigh in on which is not only the documentary you did about policing in America, but also the real result in New York of some retribution killings of police officers over incidents in other jurisdictions. Talk to my audience a little bit about that. Um, I did a documentary uh, that had to do with um, Line of Fire was what it was called, and uh, had to do with police uh, officers who had received medals of valor or other commendations in um, really treacherous situations. And I would have to believe that anyone who heard their stories and saw their stories reenacted uh, in the course of the documentary would say, that's the police officer I want in my community. That is heroism. So putting that aside and going um, really to the issues that, that you're looking at is that when we have a retribution killing, and I think the most visible was in New York um, in December of 2014, what had happened as a result of the protest uh, that began with Michael Brown and then with Eric Garner, was there was someone who was not emotionally stable, uh, who uh, went to some of these protests and came out of the protests with a very open desire, he shared with the world that uh, he was going to uh, go after uh, two police officers. You take one of ours, we'll take two of yours. And he traveled uh, from somewhere, as I recall, in the metropolitan DC area, I don't remember precisely where, and he traveled up to New York and he um, had one purpose in mind, and that was to assassinate two police officers wherever he could find them. And he happened to find them near a subway station um, and killed them in December of 2014 uh, with a gun uh, right through their windows. And that type of a retribution killing um, is something that the entire country should not only be mournful about, but should condemn. Um, it was a very emotional time for me. I was married uh, to, uh, and I'm still married, to, <laughs> to, uh, to my husband, who was then the police commissioner right. of, of New York. And it, it was, um, I think, uh, some of the most sorrowful times in our lives. And police officers came from all around the country to attend those funerals. I might also mention that um, at uh, the funeral of uh, Detective Ramos, which was the first of the two funerals, Joe Biden came to that funeral and spoke at that funeral. Um, 
that was the funeral where my husband um, posthumously promoted uh, Officer Ramos to detective uh, and gave his family his shield. And it was the funeral where my husband talked about um, being police chief in LA, uh, where he and frankly, I worked hand in glove with one of the most amazing African-American activists uh, I have ever had the privilege to know, a woman by the name of Sweet Alice Harris, uh, who uh, founded and is uh, a, an active member of Mothers of Watts. And she um, uh, was a big fan of my husband's work in uh, LA. And she said to him, when she told the story of the Ramos funeral, that the reason that she uh, accepted him and uh, and brought us both. I'm like a surrogate daughter to her. She brought us both into her life was that she said, you see us. And that was the funeral where Joe Biden heard uh, my husband, Bill Bratton, tell that story about sweet Alice Harris. And Joe Biden um, has often commented about the comment, you see us. Because doesn't it all major come back to that? That we have to see one another, that we have to see that despite our differences, that we're ultimately more alike than we are different, which is something Maya Angelou once wrote. And I will always remember that quote because in this divisive world in which we now live, where everyone seems to be running for one side or the other, we have to, as, that, as has also been recently said, we need to meet in the middle and we need to be able to have a dialogue and see one another. So we've got about a minute before we go to break, Ricky. Uh, when I was a young reporter in Amarillo, Texas, in Las Vegas, I worked the police beat. And one of the first things I learned from patrol officers in both those cities was there is no such thing as a routine traffic stop. And what they meant by that was you never know what's going to happen. And they are trained and were shown videos of situations in which they things looked routine and got suddenly very deadly unexpectedly. And I, I wonder from your vantage point if you think the public understands that sense of potential peril that every police officer feels in even situations that look outwardly routine. I don't think that much of the public does understand that. And it is our job in the media to also educate the public as to that. And by the way, it is the job of the police spokespeople to also educate the public as to that. If you ever watched an LAPD traffic stop, it is like, a core, it's, a, it's as if it was choreographed. They are so conscious of safety because a traffic stop and a domestic violence call, those are the two most dangerous situations for any Police officer. That's the voice of Ricky Kleeman, our special guest. More of our conversation with her about law, justice, policing, everything else. I'm Major Garrett. Segment four of The Takeout, coming up in a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Our special guest this week, Ricky Kleeman, CBS News legal analyst. Ricky, um... This is a kind of weedy topic, but I think it's really important to this conversation. It's kind of the thing that has stuck police reform at the federal level in Congress. We talked about it a little last week in our conversation here at the Takeout with two members of Congress. It's called qualified immunity. 
if you were to try to have a conversation across uh, a dinette table with someone who wanted to know what it was but wasn't a legal beagle, what would you try to explain to them about it and why it's so relevant to this conversation? Well, we know that it's relevant to the conversation because it's become a, a buzzword or phrase um, that uh, people say, no more qualified immunity. Uh, can't have qualified immunity. Uh, and the problem is it's completely misunderstood. Um, no one is, no one can possibly believe that if you could sue a police officer personally, that he or she would have enough assets to satisfy judgment. Uh, it, it's just not there. So what happens currently that people do not understand is that if you were to sue a police officer, you are suing then the department and you are suing the city or town in which that police officer works. And you will, uh, if you succeed or if you get a settlement, the town or the city is paying that settlement. That part of the conversation seems to have been lost because there is this thought out there that you have to be able to go after monetarily, the individual police officer for his or her actions, or police are just going to be doing terrible things. And it's just not true. Um, so one of the problems in trying to explain qualified immunity is that it's become this phrase that is really triggering on both sides of, this, uh, of the debate and, and ultimately, I will tell you that whatever the solution is, whether it's enacted in Congress or whether it's enacted locally, the solution is going to be the same as what we have now, which is if you go ahead and sue the police officer, he can't pay you or she can't pay you enough for your damages if someone has been seriously injured, let alone killed. One of right. the other things that comes up with qualified immunity is some thought that the officer cannot be prosecuted. Of course, the officer can be prosecuted if the officer committed a crime. And if it is not a crime and someone is seriously injured or dies, there still is a disciplinary process that, by the way, is individual in terms of, I think we have 18,000 different police agencies, which, uh, so there is no standardization for disciplinary factors. There's no standardization for use of force investigations, but there still are disciplinary investigations and use of force investigations. So I think that if we quote unquote, do away with qualified immunity, police will still get prosecuted as they are now, and police will still get disciplined as they are now, and cities and towns will pay judgments just as right. they are now. So popular culture is rife with commentaries embedded into TV shows, into movie plots about internal affairs looking the other way, cops not ratting out cops. It's actually discussed openly. You don't rat out another cop. Prosecutors being deferential to the mayor and the police chief. All of that courses through a popular culture understanding or misunderstanding of how police are or are not prosecuted. And to, to your earlier point, about uniform standards. So when I was a young police reporter, uh, there were still vestiges in the two jurisdictions I lived in, Amarillo and Las Vegas, of cops who were on the beat pre-Miranda, who kind of groused about 
the good old days. And then there were the younger cops who were like, no, that was actually a really important thing to set a standard and we're better cops because of it. I want to know if you think we're at one of those moments now that if we did regularize some of these things, policing would be better because it would be a shared set of standards and a shared set of assumptions. I'd like your thoughts. I do believe that, uh, to use your term, if we regularize these things, I do think that national standards are a good idea. Um, I, uh, I also think that one of the problems is uh, really has been that in the past, that the so-called thin blue line, that police officers were not willing to quote unquote rat out uh, other police officers. I do think that that is changing and has changed in recent times. You know, we I saw heard, it in the Chauvin trial. Well, I've, I've heard it over and over, much to my dismay, of commentators saying in the Chauvin trial, oh, this is the first time we have ever seen police <laughs> personnel come and testify against another police uh, officer. And I just, I, I wanted to pull my hair out. We have seen police personnel, police officers testify against other officers in cases involving excessive use of force for as far back as I go, which is decades, being a prosecutor and a defense lawyer before I became an anchor and an analyst on television. How else do these cases ever get prosecuted? You need witnesses and you need expert witnesses. So um, I think the commentary is misplaced. Uh, and I have heard it every day during the Chauvin trial. Isn't it amazing that these police officers have come in? Well, for heaven's sake, the only thing that was amazing was the chief of police testified. That I had never seen before. Right. And while so I say that, when people ask me, who do you think was the most significant witness in the Chauvin case? Bar none for me, it was the chief of police because he was these jurors chief of police and they looked right. up to him because he had moral rectitude. Uh, he was credible. He was dignified. He was what you wanted your police chief to be. And by the way, there's a lot of others like him. We just don't know about them, but I know about them. So Ricky, and we've got about a minute and a half to go, and I don't want to deprive my radio audiences because we have to say farewell in a second. But I read something interesting about you and Bill Bratton. That is, you have become a little bit more pro-police from where you were in the 70s, and he's become a little bit more leftist, even though he started out in the culture of policing. I don't want to oversimplify. I just want to give you a minute to talk about that evolution for the two of you. Well, I can say it briefly this way. Um, I was a radical protester of the 60s. Um, so the idea that I uh, had my first job before law school and after college working in a project involving police that I didn't want to accept the job. And then I found out that so many of these police people, they were peaches. You know, I liked them and they were decent people and they wanted to help people. So I was like, I, that was the start of my arc. In terms of my husband, my husband joined the police department in 1970, and he would tell you it was brutal, racist, and corrupt. And his whole goal was to escape all three of those things. And he's made a career of wanting to change those things. Excellent. Ricky Kleeman, it's been such a great pleasure. We have to say farewell to our radio audience. For those of you watching on CBSN and on the podcast platform where you're listening, no doubt. Stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. 
It's been a great pleasure to talk to you, Ricky. One more segment on the Takeout Out Take Especial. I'll see the rest of the audience. The radio audience, farewell for this week. We'll see you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. Our special guest this week, CBS News legal analyst Ricky Kleeman. Ricky, you're an actress also, are you not? I am. Um, I wanted to be an actress uh, from the time I was four years old. I studied theater, wanted to go into the theater, went to New York to become an actress. And um, uh, it was really my life stream. And uh, I had a wonderful professor in college, um, who said to me that uh, when I realized that um, I was going to still be on the audition line 40 years later uh, and just said, this is not a good way to live your life. Um, and I went and saw this professor and he said to me, you were really good in um, debating and in that college course on constitutional law, maybe you should think about going to law school. And I said, professor, girls don't go to law school. And he said to me, no, but women do. And in those four words, he dramatically changed my life. Um, and then decades later, many, many decades later, I got a call um, from someone who said they were an executive producer of a show called Las Vegas. And they wrote a character based on me um, for my work at Core TV. And would I read it, read for it? And I auditioned and I got to be Jimmy Kahn and Josh Jamal's lawyer. A um, few episodes a season for about five seasons on Las Vegas. And now I play a very nasty, abrupt judge on Blue Bloods um, named Judge Fowler. The name suits her. <laughs> Excellent. And did it all come rushing back to you those many decades later, your training as a child and in college? Um, I found uh, acting uh, as uh, an adult, especially an adult of my age, to be really difficult. Um, I've been speaking extemporaneously now uh, as a lawyer in the courtroom and on television as an analyst for uh, 27 years. And so when this opportunity came to me, I realized that I did not have muscle memory for memorization. And I was smart enough uh, to enlist an old theater chum of mine in Los Angeles, um, went all the way back to the time we were 16 doing summer theater together. And she became my prompter coach. And to this day, anytime I am doing a scene, I work with her on the phone um, and she is relentless, absolutely relentless, including the term of that was perfect. Do it again, do it again, do it again. It has to be like a prayer. I find it very, very difficult to memorize. Once I finally think I have it memorized, then all my old training comes back in. As they say, it's like riding a bicycle. There is probably an assumption that uh, theatrical flourish works in a courtroom. My guess is you have to walk a very fine line with that. 
Number one is you have to be authentic. The jury knows when you're not being authentic. You know, I have this quasi-perfect diction. If you call me at two in the morning and wake me up, this is what you'll get. This is who I am. There is nothing about me that is not authentic. And the jurors understand that most of all. As I've often said to young lawyers, I did a lecture called Theater in the Courtroom, and I took it all around the country. I'd say, I won't say I did 50 states, but I certainly lectured to bar associations in at least 40 and talked to people about theater in the courtroom and really taught them about, you know, the use of voice, the use of projection, the use of gesture, the use of silence. But ultimately, I said, you can study the best, the best lawyers that there are, and you can attempt to emulate them, but you really must always be you. And as I've often said, you have to be the best you that you can be. If you happen to be a jerk, be the best jerk that you can be. Always be authentic. So we have three threshold questions we ask every single guest on this program now in its fifth year. So in no particular order, most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies. And if you're on a long drive or a long flight and you're going to listen to some music that you're really into, what kind of music is that most likely to be, either by artist or genre? Um, I'm going to go backwards. Um, okay. The, uh, my favorite music when I drive is no question. It is John Tesh, Red Rocks. Um, and uh, I like uh, powerful music without lyrics if I'm driving. I can get easily distracted if there's lyrics. Um, <laughs> best movie, no question about it, Casablanca. I, I don't even want to think about how many times I have seen it, and I love it each and every time. And most influential book I ever read, I think um, uh, I have to go back to... Uh, looking at uh, a book that really was a book of fiction um, and was uh, uh, called War and Remembrance. Um, and the reason I say that is because I had a particular interest in the Holocaust because when we moved when I was 10, um, most of my friend's parents uh, had numbers on their arm. And when I came home uh, that day and talked to my mother at the end of school, I asked my mother why she didn't have a number on her arm. And she explained, as you only could to a 10-year-old, about the Holocaust. So I think the reason I look at that book as being very, very influential to me is because I've tried to dedicate much of my life to the issue of ending hate, um, to the issues of ending hate against all people. And um, did a lot of work with the ADL, um, over time and uh, really found that it has carried me through my life well, really well. And why I say we, we cannot afford to hate. We have to end this divisiveness. We have to meet in the middle. One last thing before I let you go. Some lawyers like lawyer movies and some lawyers I know can't stand legal or lawyer movies. Where do you fall? And if you have a favorite legal movie, what is it? I like legal movies, um, and I certainly like legal and police uh, TV shows. So I'm not going to answer the favorite movie, but I certainly am going to answer the favorite TV show. And there can be no doubt about it. It is Harry Bosch. Excellent. Very good. Ricky Kleeman, always a pleasure to talk to you. Always a pleasure to see you on CBS, but it's been a great pleasure and honor to talk to you for nearly an hour. Thanks so very much. Thank you, Major. My pleasure. See you next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. 
CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.